All right, guys, it's time for the Next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. Today's guest is Rusty Furman. Rusty is a former member of the elite SAS and has led a remarkable life shaped by his early struggles and later triumphs. He's born and raised in Carlisle and he faced a challenging childhood, being adopted and moving between various relatives and schools. At the age of 15 he found himself on his own, learning to fend for himself. His life and journey took a significant turn when he decided to pursue a military career, eventually applying for and successfully completing the rigorous SAS selection course in 1977. This achievement earned him the prestigious Beige Beret and Wing Dagger insignia, and he was assigned to B Squadron. During his time in the service, Rusty was exposed to various threats in different regions across the globe. He undertook multiple tours in these areas, facing the challenges of jungle warfare and desert training. Notably, he played a critical role as a blue team leader during the 1980 Iranian embassy siege in London, demonstrating his bravery and expertise in counter-terrorism operations. He participated in highly sensitive training operations worldwide, honing his skills in special forces training, presidential level bodyguard training and counter-terrorism techniques, providing security and surveillance services during conflicts like the war in Sarajevo and so much more. He's worked with prestigious clients worldwide and is a highly sought-after motivational speaker, sharing insights from his expertise and experiences in the SAS to inspire and educate audiences in corporate and business settings. His speeches offer winning strategies for navigating challenging situations and coping with crises. With passion and realism, he helps leaders and teams develop crucial thinking skills to tackle the ever-changing landscape of today's business world. His life is a testament to resilience, determination and unwavering dedication to duty. His journey from a challenging upbringing to a celebrated SAS member and influential speaker serves as an inspiring example for individuals and businesses alike. And in this interview, we chat about his time in the military and the SAS, writing his books, the six days films and why you need to ignore the push to stop and aim to go always a little further every day in your life. And now let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for coming on. You're a British hero. You're immortalized in film. But for people who maybe don't recognize the name, how would you introduce yourself to people? Um, I'd probably introduce myself as I'm pretty humble. I've been told a lot of times, you know, you need to get out there and do this and do that. I go, yeah, okay, next. You know, and basically... I was just a guy from Carlisle who couldn't do anything right. School, absolutely rubbish. Sport, loved it, but wasn't big enough to do and get into my, what I wanted to do. 
um, which be a footballer, obviously. But the fact is, I just tell them, I'm a guy who was going nowhere and then ended up to a lot of people. Uh, I don't like the word hero. I don't like legend. Um, I'm just a guy that introduces himself exactly as what I've said. Um, I've had some luck. I've had some bad luck. I've made luck. But at the end of the day, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the States now as well. I can come on to that later on, you know, doing talks out there. I'm off there next week. You know, so I've gone from being a Carlisle kid that was being bullied because of my size um, that went through the whole system, which you obviously know about, and ended up now helping others to maybe try to achieve what I never thought dreamt was achievable. And that's a God honest truth. I did it without a family. So how did I do it? That's the question. And that's the type of person I am. You know, um, I'm still working. I'm still doing talks for people, still doing presentations all over the place. You know, but that's me. I don't want to sit down and retire. You know, at my age, people say, no, it's, that's not the case. The case is that if you enjoy what you're doing, what's the point in sitting down and saying, yeah, I've done that. No, I've got more plans. Oh, you know, and I start again Thursday. I've got a big talk down at... Um, down at the Bisley, uh, which are the ranges in the UK, the shooting ranges. Um, and then it's the States. So that's where I am. You know, all of a sudden, uh, I've hit America. <laughs> you know, it's supposed to happen. So how does that how do you juggle that, the success you've had, the legacy that you've had with your upbringing? You, know, you mentioned being bullied and things like that. How do you kind of look back at that time now to the man you are now? How, how do you judge those two different rusties? Sorry, could you just repeat that? Yeah, so... How how would you judge the Rusty that was bullied and you know brought up in the small village to the Rusty that you are now? You know the one with the legacy, the the honors, the medals you've won. How 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 do you find that looking back now? Because you were frog marched down to the recruitment office by a family member. How how do you come to terms with that and what you could have done? Well, it's easy to look back, but actually I spend a lot of time looking forward because what's gone is gone and I've had to blank it out of my mind um, from a very, very early age when I was adopted at 14 months. So mm. somewhere I must have pissed my mother off to get adopted at that sort of age, you know, to people I didn't even know. So... I've had to come out fighting and the fight from within is still there. I don't hate anybody. 
but I've not had what you might call um, a proper family life in the early years. Yeah, I was a rebel. I was long hair. And I can look back on that and go, well, the reason is there was nobody there to really care. So what do you do? Because if there's no care, no love, no nothing, you just go on and keep fighting the battles, hoping. And that's what I did. Um, you know, it, my life could have changed at 15. Had I got 50 pounds to buy myself out of the army, which in 1965 was a lot of money. But yeah. I couldn't get it. And the thing that saved me is becoming a sportsman within the army. And, you know, um, what, I, what I achieved then in sport is what I wanted to be. I played for the British Army at football. You couldn't get any higher in semi-professional football. You know, I played for the army. I represented the British Army. You know, and it talks about what I see this day and age. My bringing up is totally different from what I've seen. Um, a lot of the guys I've met in the army, a lot of them have got backgrounds like mine. But anybody can sit still and say, mm, start whinging and whining. And, but you can't. I'm helping people right now to motivate themselves, to get them, get a life. I'm a patron of three charities here in the UK. I'm paid, and I get paid for it. And I see these amputees and servicemen and vets, but I'm there, and I have been for years to help. But what they don't realize, a lot of them, is I've been there before, but nobody helped me. So that's how I work. That's how I do things. Um, I enjoy it. And I've got a reasonable, I think I've got a very good credibility. And that is more than anything. So do you think that the the army gave you the family that you were looking for? Because you yeah. seem to have this brotherhood of support and love across from other, from other people. Do you think that gave you that discipline, the, the family that you were seeking back then? Maybe. Um, the fact is that the family I was supposed to have is not, you know, the family that I can remember because it was very short. You get adopted at 14 months, you don't know your real parents. You then move on not knowing that you've sort of been passed around and all of a sudden you live with an auntie and such and such there. 12 or 13 different schools. There was no settlement there, mm -hmm. which meant, you know, I had to sit there day in and day out and wonder what was going on. Everybody else, I've never sent a Mother's Day card in my life. So, that, you know, who is she? I never sent a Father's Day card in my life. How many people can say that? I'll tell you what, I bet there's not many. So I had to overcome, you know, you have to overcome and drive forward. And that's what I did. Age 15, three months in the army as a poor soldier, 
I'd have been gone. And when I say gone, I mean probably dead because I was un uncontrollable. But the fact is, that's where I was going. Pushed into the army, yes. Accepted the army, no. Discipline, didn't know anything about it. I soon did, by the way, within two years in board service. You know, um, you talk about bullying. I hate bullying. Yeah. But I was bullied till I grew up. Then nobody's bullied me for years. I'll tell you that. Um, but in my day, you know, expect it, yeah. Deal with it, yeah. Um, there's not an awful lot else you can do with it. So that's how I grew up. That's when I knew, you know, what, what's around the corner here. I don't know. That's when I started to want things, you know, I got there. I went to that one. I went to the commanders. I went to the SAS. You know, I couldn't do any, I couldn't go any higher. But that then put me in the next level, if you like. The next level was all of a sudden people want me. Now think about that. Somebody who's been pushed away all his life, but somebody wants me. And that's where <clears throat> a lot of things changed. And I was quite happy to help people, no question. Um, that's why um, I'm involved in a lot of stuff. Um, and even now, but that's something I wanted, something that people wanted from me, not me being forced into something I didn't want to do. Hard to explain. Yeah. But I'm sure you understand what I'm saying because you've done a lot of this. But I didn't need, all of a sudden, I didn't need people to rely on. I never had it as a kid. They relied on me. And all the way through my service, I could have gone at 15. I ended up doing 27 years in the British military. And 15 of them were in the SAS. And do you think the the independence that you had when you were younger, you know, that kind of resilience to have and have to rely on yourself made you such a good soldier that you could they could rely on you to think on your feet, to look after yourself, to take leadership, to take control of situations. Do you think it helped you in a way? Well, it's definite. In my day, when I was 15, before, I was a runaway. You know, it was like anything with excitement, you know, piss people off, I suppose. Um, that was me. But it was also my friends. Hmm. You know, and then I went one way, they went their way. And um, everything that I've learned and done and tried to help others with, I've been through the learning curve. So I know what to expect. You know, and that's where a lot of people talk the talk. Well, I've done it, you know, talked the talk and I've walked the walk. And the fact is, Ian, that... It doesn't matter what you do. I've, I've been through the, it's been a hard life, right? Enjoyable in a lot of ways. But would you swap it? Um, 
nowadays I'd say no, unless I was getting paid professional footballers' money. <laughs> and then I would say, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Because, you know, um, but that's just me. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's difficult, isn't it, when you consider, like, all the life choices that we have and then you, you but a lot of it's out of our control you know it's where we're brought up our family situation our schooling how we're dealt with by people and i think you've done an amazing job from coming from that situation you've achieved so much and you've helped so many people and you should be immensely proud of what you do and you're still giving back to charities, you're still inspiring people. How did you find that then, the discipline, the control as you progressed? Did you struggle to kind of leave the old Rusty and enter into the the Rusty that the military wanted and that they inspired that you could become? How did you deal with that initial training? I was lucky. Um and I mean lucky that the people I met in the early days um, in the military were really friendly. And I was one of the youngest officers I was coming through. You leave boy service to go to man service. You're a man at 17 and a half, right? It used to be anyway. So you're a junior leader, junior, a boy soldier, if you like. You go through your two years of being beaten around and bullied and stuff, fine. Then you leave there and you go to your man service, as they called it. Well, I was just lucky. And I'm not being funny. I was a good footballer, right? And I got into football. I wanted to be a tracksuit soldier. That's what I wanted. You know, sod that, get paid for playing football. In 4-9 Field Regiment, aren't all artillery, I could be playing five games a week, enjoying myself, getting paid off some, as well as the army. Um, you know, and the people I met there were very friendly, northern regiments, um, you know, the north of England. I'm from the north, obviously. And then I sort of knit in with them and had a nucleus of friends that... We were friends, you know, um, but the trouble was they stayed their course within four nine field until they ref. Well, I, I had itchy feet and wanted to go to the commandos, and then from the commandos I went to the SES. So I was always there, but I always wanted to do something different. And the reason is I didn't know what I was looking for. Dead simple. Um, and while I was in the commandos, I was playing football for the commandos. When I was playing uh, in the SAS, I was captain of the SAS football team. You know, all of that as it progressed, and all of a sudden I'm meeting all these different characters, and I mean different characters, right? Um, good guys, some of them, yeah, same as they probably think about me, but that's who gives a shit anyway. And I don't, you know. But the fact is, that that's how I learned. And when I was learning, I didn't realize that I might have been having a bit of a following, not in the pop star world, but 
all the civvy teams when I was in the, in, the, in the military wanted me to play football for them as well as being in the military, which is great because that's what I did. And then it was rugby. I'd be playing rugby. I'd be playing cricket. Anything to get into a tracksuit. <laughs> um, um, until I went to the SAS, obviously, um, and that had to change. But I was still captain of the football team in the SAS. Still, you know. So, to some respect, they had respect for me in a different area. You know, um, done my bit. But when you get to that level. You know, and you think, should I become a footballer? Well, apart from the money, probably yes. But actually, I was quite happy. Um, you know, the things I did in the SS in particular um, suited me down to the ground. And yet, if I'd known that existed in the early days, I'd have probably gone much earlier. But I didn't. I found it out on the learning curve as I was going through. And that's what propelled me up until I left the army when I then had a whole new world in front of me. But I wasn't frightened of doing that. Like some of the some of the guys who leave the army can never leave the army in here. Now, they're still in the army. Now, yeah. guess what Rusty did? He, when I left, I went and did the um, Nibosh health and safety management, the most boring subject I've ever done in my life. But I got it, and I knew that it was coming in and being used, you know, in the future. If you're doing security, I've got that background. You know, um, health and safety, I thought, well, I'll do that because nobody else is doing it. But I'll have that as a string to my bow. So I was never falling behind. I was trying to keep up and go forward. I was working, you know, all over the place. Um, no doubt we'll come on to that in a minute. But it led me to different things as I was going through my life. People wanted to know about what I did, you know, in my books here. <laughs> they wanted to know. So I let them know. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't look back. As I said at the beginning, there's always something else. Yeah, deal with that at the back. But there's always something in front of you, and that is the unknown, which I'm interested in. What is in front? Yeah. Ian, that's what kept me going. I love that. I love that, you know, that you're always looking forward. You're, you accept, you move on, you deal with it, and you just keep pushing and pushing. And as you did find about the SAS and as you started your training and, you know, you became like an exceptional soldier, what, what have you noticed between a normal, like, grunt in the army compared to the SAS? You know, they're one of the most elite units in the world. What have you noticed about the top performers there? You know, what makes them so different, so special in terms of militaries around the world? Well, Special Air Service, you know, when it was formed, it was formed by special special guards. Therefore, SAS, Special Air Service. I got interested in, I was never going to go there while I was in the artillery, when I mean the artillery. I was never going to go there when I was in 4-9. And I'm glad, really, because I think I may have failed 
because I'd have been too young. But <clears throat> to be a top performer and keep it at the top, I did 15 years in the SAS. It's a long time to be working at a level which a lot regard as the toughest selection for any special forces in the world. I don't like no. saying that, but I do go along with it because I've done it. <laughs> and I've done the commando selection. I've, I've, you know, I can talk about stuff I've done. Mm. And that's why there was never such a big pass rate in my day. You know, you have 90 people turn up, you might have 15 people pass. It, it is and was that difficult. Um, so when you pass that, you just have a quick look over your shoulder and go, I'm proud to be where I am, but I had to work for it. It wasn't given to me, but nothing in my life, not one thing has ever been given to me. Nothing. I've had to work for everything I've got. Um, and that was still part of when I was in the SAS. So when you work at that level and you're recognized after some of the jobs you'll probably mention in a minute, once you've done that, Ian, the fact is that you think, you know what, I haven't done that bad from this five foot two skinny kid, weighed about seven stone, and then look what you've achieved. Everybody's better at telling me what I've achieved than I'm telling about myself. That's God's honest fact. Yeah. And then I think, yeah, I did do that. Book, second book. I want to do my third book. All non-fiction. You know, forget these cowboys. Man of non-fiction. And the fact is, that's where I've come through life. That's what I've known. That's why I've got to where I am. And people go. But when you work at that level and have to constantly be at that level, that's a different kettle of fish. You make a mistake, it's going to cost. Be it cost you or cost somebody with. I've looked after um, you know, security, big stars. I've taught presidential bodyguards. I've worked at presidential level. I've been over to the Secret Service. I'm at the moment working with some of the uh, police SWAT teams in America. So I'm speaking, you know. So they all want to learn. You mm. know what? I'd be glad to pass on what I know. And that to me says, why did they come to me? There's a question. Why? Because they think I've got something to offer them. And the fact is, I know I can offer them something, especially the younger members. Because I had to go through my learning to get there and stay alive, to pass it down the line. And it's a huge honor um, for people <clears throat> from a different country to say, come and speak to my guys. Tell them what you know. So do you that think... That just speaks volumes for yeah. what they want. So do you think then that your books were the first chance you got to to actually take stock of it all? 
that you've always been a kind of looking forward, taking on new responsibilities, pushing yourself and writing your books gave you a chance to come to terms and look back and, you know, just kind of understand all the amazing things you've achieved because you seem to always be wanting to keep pushing yourself, focusing, doing new things, taking on new challenges, helping so many people. But were your books a chance for you to stop and actually take stock of what you've done? Well, the the books are like um, it's something that's going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. So you had a chance to put your point across, um, which I've done. Um, and the two books, um, let me know when I can show them. No, oh, go but for the it. Two books, they'll be in. They'll be in the um, show notes as well. Um. <laughs> Let's go, go, go. Which is on my website, www.rusty-fermin.com. That one, you see Jamie Bell quite clearly on the front, the British actor. Well, that was turned into a film called Six Days. They couldn't call it Go, Go, Go for different reasons. But Jamie Bell plays me, Rusty Fermin, in the film. But it all came from writing with Will this book okay it's all on my website so that was 2010 that was out for the 30th anniversary Reddings embassy siege which i played quite a big part in and um that was took part in 1980 30 years later go 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 came out right to the month almost that was what it was designed to do. But that, this book, was due, that came out for the 30th anniversary of the siege. Subsequently turned into a film called Six Days on Netflix. Jamie Bell plays me, Rusty Fermin, as a team leader on the assault that day. Um, so I thought, great. Um, never thought much more about it afterwards. Didn't know it was ever going to be turned into a film. I had no idea. So then waited a few more years, traveling all over the world, um, working with all sorts of different people, indigenous, training people, operations and stuff. And then I wrote this one. The Regiment, 15 years in the SAS. That... Both of them are audible, by the way, if you need audible. Uh, So that was actually my life story up until I left the SES in 1992. Of course, my third book, which I want to do, is from 1992 as a direct follow-on from that, what I did in Civvy Street, as they call it. That you're going to have some laughs at. And you're going to go, wow, even I did that. And I haven't even written it yet, but I've got it ready. So I'd like to do that. And again, people can see that there is no stop in life. You stop when you die. Or you stop when you decide to stop. At the moment, I don't see the word stop. What I do see is... Always a little further, which is a mantra 
Okay, there's always something else to do. It just depends what you want to do. You know, I can mix and match. I'm a lifelong Liverpool supporter, football club. You know, so you can watch your football. You can do your work. I've got a couple of projects going on right now, which are totally different, diverse. And people say, well, why don't you stop? I say, well, I don't want to stop. I don't really want to die. I want to keep going. And it doesn't matter. As long as my legs will carry me, I'm off. Mm. When they can't, time to hang your boots up, mate. And that's a fact. And a lot of the guys I know, um, serving, you know, guys I've served with, a lot of them are no longer with me. You know, they're not there anymore. They're good friends of mine. So whatever I can leave as a legacy anywhere, I'm quite happy to do that. And I don't want to change it. Um, so really, the books are one. One was turned into a film. If I could do a third book, great. And it's all about life experiences. People, people want to know about it, you know, and they can learn. They can learn from a book. I've had lots and lots of comments on them, really nice comments about how did you do this? How did you find that? I try where I can to answer them all. Um, and really, it's, it's, to me, it's a bit, wow, I never thought people would look at it that way. To me, it's a mm. book. <laughs> that's, that's what I've done. People are interested. Because the way the world is at the moment, the way the country is at the moment, you know, a lot of people look for a bit of leadership, motivation, inspiration. You know, if I can help, that's what I do. And I don't, don't see myself changing that because it's in my blood. You know, Fermin, my surname, comes from feminists, part French. Yeah, shame on that side of it, but... And, uh, you know, it means steadfast and resolute. I think I fit that without being big-headed. I think I fit in that bill because I'm really hard to shut up. I've got a point of view to put across. I still look at this country as mine. I fought for it. And I'll still lay down, even as of last week. I stood up and I will keep fighting even though a lot of it appears to be a losing fight because of our weak leadership in this country. The fact is, when people say something to me, I just say, you know what? At the moment, it's still my country. You know, take it or leave it. Sometimes it's a bit stronger than that, by the way. But I fought for my country. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates 
and level up. How do you find that, like, with the because you you show people what it's possible like you've said you know you're a small kid you've gone from being bullied to leading an SAS team you know you've got a film made about your exploits you've done all these amazing things how how do you find that when you look at it you know like it's the film realistic to what you endured what you have to put up with you know with the the you know the government saying we're going to do this and the weak leadership and things like that how realistic is the films to what you guys had to put up with because you've done amazing things you've sacrificed so much for the country but how realistic is the portrayal like six days to what you actually endured yeah um well, six days isn't just for me, by the way. You know, a few of the guys um, that served with me at the time, they all spoke to the scriptwriter, Glenn Standrin, New Zealand Film Corporation. Um, and they, they, everybody in their own words said, sat down and, you know, over, over a period of a few days in Hereford, actually, they all give their story. But because of who I was and the man with no gloves, I was a standout. You know, you probably have you heard of the man with no gloves? Yeah. But did did you They're, really did you really leave them because you were watching the snooker and forgot them? Yeah. No, I didn't forget them. I sat down to watch the snooker with John Mac John McAleese, my mate. Mm -hmm. A lot of people know John with the moustache. And when we came in from stand two, which means it was an incident, but it didn't go in. So we came back in. The snooker was on. World, um, the Embassy World Championship was on. Alex Higgins was playing Cliff Thorburn at that particular time. So we came back in on the day of May the 5th, 1980. We came back in. Then we went out for the very last time. Unbeknown. They'd killed a hostage, um, the terrorists. So my gloves, when I came in, normally went down my body armor. Take them off. Sit there with all your kit. I'd put them on the table, watching the snooker. And then we got a quick call out because they killed a hostage. A guy called Lavasani, the press attaché. That is a proper picture that was taken by police snipers of the day. It's called The Resolution. It's now my print, which I had a painting done. It's on my website, www.rusty-firming.com. And that there, you can see that I've got no gloves on, and I'm the team leader. I'd left them by the television so we went through the assault, rescued the 19 hostages, um, disposed of five terrorists. One terrorist got out, captured. I went back and picked my gloves up after that. Um, but really, it was just I'd left them by the TV when we got called out for the last time. But I didn't realize until we got outside the building but I wasn't going back for my gloves. Yeah. They stayed there. They stayed there to the very end. 
So that's a print I'd done of it. Um, it's called the res resolution there. And that's the, the, the guys that went in the back door um, on the 5th of May, 1980, to rescue the hostages. And I was a team leader of that lot. So how much planning do you are you involved in? Because in the film, you know, you're portrayed as the guy that plans it, that works out. You know, you seem to have this great mind for these things. Do you... How how much involvement now, are you in training and planning and stuff like that? Because you seem amazing at these sorts of things. Now, I mean, the, the film is a film, and I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. As much as we were involved in some of the planning, the planning changes towards the end. You may or may not know that, mm. but the plan is the plan, and we call it a skeleton. And as days go on, you put meat on it. But it wasn't just me. Everybody has an input. But somebody finally has to say, right, this is the plan, right? And then that plan is the final um, assault plan, which we used. My, in the film, it looks like um, I've, I've done a lot of the planning. But actually, it's pretty much other guys are doing the same, but it's a film, so the film has to be portrayed over a certain period of time. Can you imagine? It's like Zulu, the film. You know, <laughs> how many Zulus were there? You know, the fact is that they were trying to show a camaraderie between the guys that were on there. They're not saying they're the only ones who were on there. Yeah. It's a film they had to get inside 90 minutes um, and make it the best way they, they, they could. Um, so they took my input, as I say, they've taken the guys, um, the other guys that get mentioned in the credits, they, they, they put an input in, they've read through the book, you know, this book here, again, go, 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 one of my books, and they've decided on what they want as a film, um, and that's what they produced. So I never went to them. They came to me, having read that book, yeah. and they decided that that was a film they wanted. Did I have an interest? And I said, yeah, because I thought after 30 years, I thought maybe it might have been covered elsewhere. But, but actually, if you think about it, it wasn't. So mm -hmm. I had a chance to put um, my input into it, um, and people often say, I tell them the same story. The fact is that it's a book that they've written, they've read, and then the film has to be put into a script because it's a film script. So that's how, you know, that's how it works. It's not the first film or documentary I've been involved in, but they're all the same. You can't make it word for word because it's a shame that some of the guys that would have been in that film are dead. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And they never had a chance to put an input into it. So it's one way of telling it, but they may want to tell it a different way in another book. Or, but if you notice, nobody's done that. I was lucky that I had all the pictures. I had you know, the, a lot of knowledge because of what I did. 
but also other people were quite happy to put an input into the film. So on that side of it, Ian, it's a film and it is quite accurate, but they have to give it a film license as well, don't they? You know that, yeah. you know, because not enough people, unfortunately, are around to dot every, you know, uh, cross the T's and stuff. But the film is, yeah, it's, you know, I was an advisor on it. I went to New Zealand to advise on it and train Jamie Bell to become me, the, you know, Jamie, the British-born actor. He played me in the film. So they said, go out to New Zealand, which I did, um, and helped out there with the some of the... But then when I came back, the... Um, Matthew, the producer and stuff, they got together and did what they wanted to show. And it wasn't a Bravo thing. It, what it was, was a part which was there for them to make a film about. And I wouldn't see that till it was finally finished. Um, because, you know, producers and directors get on with that stuff. I did my part. I taught some um, the room clearance drills as we did with the weapons we had in those days um, to make the film as best you can with the memory of all those years ago. And when it came out, um, it's had good reviews. Uh, simple as that, really. I think. I mean, I think it's wonderful that you're getting the opportunity to. You know, to show people and keep that legacy alive. You know, to to give the guys the honour, the respect that they deserve for doing such an incredible thing, saving so many people, ridding the world of terrorists. You know, and for you know demonstrating what we will accept and what we wouldn't accept on British soil. How are you trained during that? Do you think the soldiers are born that way? Or are you trained so much that when the shit hits the fan, everybody else is running away? You go in because you, you're so highly trained? Is it a mix of nature versus nurture, do you think? Um, well, as I say, I did my selection in 77. And I remember the instructors in the SAS in particular I always remember that they were down-to-earth guys, knowledgeable beyond belief. And I thought, I've never met this before. Um, so first of all, I wanted to pass the course, so I couldn't upset anybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I thought, you know, after the six-month training there to get in to start with, that the level of person or guys you're working with, they come from a variety of backgrounds. Could be artillery engineers, could be the old slop jockeys, it could be um, all sorts of people. Intelligence corps, um, all these different characters come together to do a course to try and get in the SAS. And the one thing about that is this, when you come to do a plan for a mission, for an operation, for training, 
when you sat there with all these guys, this is what we've got to do. You have a you have an enormous wealth of knowledge because of their units and what they do in their units. You know, you make a plan and sat there somebody would say, well, Rusty, Rusty Aaron or whoever, I've got, what about this? Because I'm from that unit. So what you're thinking, you go, fucking hell, yeah, he's been there. So you can change and manipulate. And these are a different level because they're the ones year after year that have actually passed. And I don't class myself as an essay soldier. Having passed the course, never did. I knew that I'd give myself at least two years to find out how it all worked. So all these different characters and backgrounds are on your side, they're your team. You're working with them together. And that means an awful lot because if you make a mistake, you've got somebody there that'll stand up. Um, what about this? When, you don't discard that and say, sit down. You know, you take that on board and think, is that a valid point? Then you talk through it. Excuse me, but you know what? I'm going to call it a Chinese parliament. I don't care who upset. That's what we did. Chinese parliament. Everybody sits down and throws their bits in. Yeah. One guy has to make the plan. Right? And you've got all these faces there. You know, they're not young kids. These are predominantly 20 odds upwards. So they've all seen service. They've all come from different backgrounds. There's an awful lot of knowledge there. You discard that knowledge at your peril because those guys, okay, they've all passed the SS selection. They've all got something to say. 99% of it is 100%, but then all that information you have to disseminate and then put it together. Right, this is the plan. Okay, so it's not like a shop floor maybe in uh, one of the workers or maybe one of the units I was in before where the boss goes, right, this is it, and does it all on his own. Everybody goes behind his back, toss their ears, you know. It's not like that. It was put into the Chinese parliament, have a talk, come out, make the plan. That's why... The SES, in my opinion, is so successful because they take on board everything, not discard it. <laughs> Rubbish. That's why they're successful. Fitness and everything else, yep. I still think it's the hardest one of all of them to get into. But actually, when you're making the plans and success of the operations that are being done, that is one of the main reasons, and people don't know that. That's a, that's a really great insight, because you true. don't see that any, anywhere true. else, do you? No. People don't no. listen to other people, and I love that you no. guys bounced off each other, got feedback, planned. And But how, how do you feel then about how, you know, the rules of engagement then, how we dealt with terrorism and things like that? How has that changed over the last 20, 30 years since you were in the army and leaving it? 
I'm not quite sure about that because when I left the SAS, I don't follow them. I've got some good friends, by the way, but I don't follow what the SAS do, what anybody does. Rules of engagement to me are, first of all, rules of engagement, great. There they are, written down. There you go. You go, yeah, okay. You know what? No, seriously. My rules of engagement were always, whatever happens on the ground, I'll make that decision. Mm. And I ain't going to look at a bit of paper, not for anybody, not for one person. I will do what I have to do and stand up later and say, that's what I did. Because it's unfair. The terrorists don't have rules of engagement. What they do is they're whinging and whining afterwards. Okay. They want to fight, pick a fight. Okay. Don't rules of engagement are one sided. Okay. So why bother yourself with them? You haven't got time. Most of it split second stuff. What you need to do, my rules of engagement in here. Okay. I've read that gone. I will make my decision when I have to. As long as I'm alive at the end of it, I don't give a monkeys. You know, and that's not being funny or nasty or anything disrespectful. But if you can have rules of engagement, let's have them on both sides, shall we? How about that? Yeah. That might take some people back. They ain't going to like that. But that's what it is. So how do you find then the, the transition to civilian life? You know, how do you find leaving the army? Because I've, I've interviewed people. I work in a university where one of my colleagues is looking. He's the, the the British military champion with the university. And they're looking at transitioning soldiers to civilian life. And that there wasn't like a, a good way of doing it. You know, they were kind of just, there's your sign out papers, off you go. And some of them didn't know how to do bank accounts and things like that. How how did you find your transition and what changes would you like to see for heroes that are coming out of the service that are going into normal life? Well, I did touch on this earlier, if you remember, in this interview. Um, I went, when I was going out of the army, I'd been in 27 years. Yeah. I couldn't wait to get out because military really is for, you know, once you hit 42 which I was when I came out, pretty much I was ready to go. No question. It says that in my book. Um, all I did is I thought, right, what am I going to do? Security, I've got that sewn up. I've done this, I've done that. And I went to security quite quickly. Uh, they call it the circuit. Um, I got good jobs. But before I went out, um I did things like, as I said earlier, NEBOSH certificate, security management, all that type of stuff. Plymouth College of Further Education bore the backside off me. Um, but I did it, and I got yeah. my qualifications. Right. So anybody wants to see, Rusty, what did you do? They are a shed full of security. There's my little diploma there. Oh, I love your diploma. Load of bollocks. You know what? When I went out of the army, I had to do it. 
I did it for another reason as well, because I knew that I could pass it. It's mm. nothing. And I did. But to an employer, it's a little bit of paper. You know, where's this bit gone? But I did it. That's me. People coming out of the army should always prepare to come out. Seven Ps. Prior planning and preparation prevents piss poor performance, right? Seven Ps. Plan what you're going to do. And try to execute your plan. Because that's going to suit you. Don't expect anything, nothing, to be given to you on a plate. I'm telling you that now. Because if you think back to my life, what was given to me? The answer is nothing. nothing. So, you know what? That's only me. But I think I've had, uh, I've inspired people. I've spoken to them. I've helped them. If you don't help yourself, you know what? Get on that scrap heap over there with the rest of them. Because it starts with you. You help yourself first, Ian. Anybody else, quite happy to help. But you have to help yourself. Oh, I've been in the Army 20 years, 30 years. Uh, I, I can't go into civilian street. Yes, you can. First of all, put it there. Get yourself a little path where you might want to go. Because, trust me, Wherever I've gone, it's never gone to plan. I've had the plan. But if you go down that line and can't change, forget it. You might have to change and go right. You might have to go left instead of down that line. But have something because nobody can stay in the army forever. Or the military. You know, um, I've done talks for cadets. I've done, well, everybody. Um, and charities. Uh, yeah, and working with the amputees and stuff in the charities. Um, the fact is, you have to actually get out there and just say, right, I'm, I've got to go out there. You see, you've got that there, and you've got your pension there, and you've been paid all your life in the army. That's where, oh, I can't do that. Well, you can do it. What you have to do is prepare yourself to do it. Look back, if you want, forget it. You know you're going out of the army, and I've helped them. But the, the biggest failure is people, you know, um, is people, especially the guys on the streets and stuff. Some of them could be helped. But in my day, when I came out, there was nothing you know, all, all this PTSD and stuff, um, which eventually you can get diagnosed with, yes. But the, the fact is, Ian, that there, there, there is help, but it's very hard to help somebody who's lost it a bit here. You know, it'd be nice to say we've got the government. The immigrants get treated better than our ex-forces. No question. They come over here. Nobody even knows who they are. They give them money. They give them somewhere to live. 
to give these warrants to go, you know, uh, you know, it really grips me. But the fact is, they don't do that with the veterans. The guys who fought for the country and died for the country. That is something that's inexcusable. You know, and I've made that point a hundred times. Never, ever going to change that. Our veterans are treated crap by this establishment. They always have been. You know, there's no question. And um, it's just absolutely awful weather tree. They've been through a lot. And the day it stops, maybe their mind stops. You know, but that's not the case. If we've got houses available, then put the veterans in there. So do you think there's things in the army that would be good for all men to do? You know, are there things that they teach you that would help today's society? The the way that men are treating veterans, are treating just the world would that you know would the would the army kind of mentality give them a a kick up the arse that's needed? Do you think? I don't think so. I think that the whole thing is corrupt. The system hmm. and it's got more corrupt. Um, and I really absolutely believe that nobody's bothered. You, you know, when you join the army, you get given a number, right? When you leave the army, you leave with that number. And to most, I'm talking about when I left, I don't know too much about nowadays, but when you leave, they don't actually give a share. You know, you're another number. That's all you are. Yeah. You're there, 27 years, next, and it goes on. You know, um, so... Why should, why should you be out in the army for 20, 30, 40 years and they get called back for an incident that happened all this time, you know, all these years ago? You're nothing more than a pawn. People move you around, you know, and that shouldn't be right. A guy that's done his service, um, maybe been an incident or two, that happens when you're told what to do by your seniors because if you don't do it, Get court martialed. It's an order. Disobey an order. And then 20, 30 years, my good friend Dennis, um, how many times was he taken back to Northern Ireland? Uh, eventually he died on his last trip there. Um, it, it's, it really is beyond, you know, and if you haven't been in that, it's hard to explain. But you aren't anybody. You're nobody. You're a pawn for the ones that are left there above you to play with. That's the way it is. And I don't see any changes to that because, I'll be honest with you, just have a look at the governments we've had. They're not bothered. They go home at night. You don't see their kids getting, you know, shot because they're never in the forces. Have a look at it that way. So what advice would you give to anybody like in the army, joining the army, 
in the SAS, you know, how, what would you give them like a, like maybe to inspire them or to, to kind of rein them in to kind of have their, them focused on a particular way <laughs> to, to be the best they can be their best self and in the role. Well, I've said this before, and the fact is that maybe myself now, if I was going to join the army now, knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't have joined the army. (laughs) But the fact is, I'm not telling people not to join the army. But what I am saying is, before you do that, you need to have a good look at what's actually going on, what you could be involved in. Do you want to be 20 years, 30 years after you, maybe you're married and got three or four kids or whatever, being dragged in before a court because something that happened 30 years ago? It needs a lot of thought, Ian. And, mm. you know, I wouldn't say to anybody who wants to join the army, don't join because of, <laughs> you know, because of what I did. I enjoyed it in the end. But what I would say is that they need to make themselves 100% certain that they're ready to face those consequences because I've been through it and I know a lot of friends of mine have been through it. And that's when you think, I've served my country. Now, all of a sudden, you drag back for this, drag back for that. Um, They've got a family as well. Nobody cares about them. All they care about is appeasing the establishment every time. So I would say, give it some thought. Because I've had some good times. Um, And I've enjoyed a lot of the stuff I've done. But I am watching and I do work with veterans. And I can see how it affects them at times. It's not good. But everybody else, you know, not in that sort of setup, you know, they don't get a chance, mate. They have Mm. to do what they're told. I don't like that. I mean, the thing is, you've given other people a chance at life by saving people, by rescuing people. You know, you've done these amazing things and you've changed society for the better. So you should be phenomenally proud of what you've done. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say about the sacrifices you have to make, which are unfair on what they give you in support afterwards. But when when you look back now, what do you think about, you know, like if you could remember that day that you started to the day you left, how, how what do you think of that time now? Is it something that you look at with pride? Is it... Do you ever long for what for playing football, you know, just enjoying yourself? What what do you think of when you look back? I mean, do you have any regrets or because you've saved so many people? But what what would you write in your book now if you had to sum up your life? What would you say? Um <laughs> It's an awful lot because I'm I'm I, I'm I'm going beyond where we are right now. Mm-hmm. I've already spoke about recently about what's happening worldwide. 
my time in the in the army um, was different than the time in the army now, right? Because yeah. you know, um, certainly different prime ministers um, who actually support or stab you in the back. I was lucky that we had Maggie Thatcher. I know not everybody likes her. It's a fair point. But we don't have those type of people anymore. I can only talk about what I did when I did it. I can watch what goes on now. And it's beyond. Um, You know, uh, you just don't know what they're doing. But me, I was lucky in some respects. Did my time. Got out of it in reasonable condition. Look back and then see, you know, certain things that happened. 90% of it's political, obviously. But the soldiers are the ones who have to take the brunt of it. But I really would like to see them supported better, looked after better when they come out as a veteran, helped if required. And they shouldn't ever have to be on the streets. Now, I can write about that Mm. because of what I've done since I've been out. And I want to get my third book out because I've never been about myself. Um, And I, I do voluntary stuff. Um, which I, you know, I get my kick out of that helping. But I do think that the, the country is more orientated towards immigration than it ever is towards soldiers on the street, shall we say. And they're not bothered. They've done their bit. Their number is passed. And that's it. I mean, you've mentioned about, you know, a lot of great friends. You're helping a lot of people just now. What what did the service teach you about, you know, like building friendships, building, you know, that kind of lifelong friends, teamwork? Because you you make a brotherhood in the service and you help the people now, you're helping veterans now. What, what have you learned about friendships from that, you know, that – and almost that sense of being wanted, the sense of being part of something by being in the service? Um, as I say, when I joined and when I moved on through the army, a lot of the people I've met were people from similar backgrounds. Yeah. Okay. Doctor, remember Dr. Bananos and stuff like that? Um, and it, you seem to get this like nucleus that come together <laughs> like magnets attracting each other <clears throat> and you find that for every story you've got your mate's got a story and you talk about them you can relate you bond a friendship somebody you have to be able to rely on people when you work in the sort of um, stuff I've done in the SAS in particular. 
if you've got a weak link, it's going to be exposed very, very quickly. Definitely. So, so I mean that. And the fact is, you have to rely on what you've got. You're close, and you're in small numbers, really. You know, you've got to realize that it's probably at some stages do or die. But the fact that that comes and goes, they're your top friends. Then you get the next level. The next level of people, acquaintances, let's say. You know, people to play football with in the regiment or whatever. Um, you see them, you know, especially in SAS because four squadrons, one might be somewhere, one might be at home in the UK, one might be somewhere else. And so, on. so you've got acquaintances you meet all the time over your period of years. Uh, they're, they're friends, but the ones you're working with day in and day out, you got to rely on them. <laughs> um, and if you can't, you know, the days are numbered. Um, and, and really, and that, that's the way it was. You've got to make your mind up with your what you've seen in life, what you've done, how you've been let down, how you've got people to go ahead and force it. So you make that type of friendship, and then maybe one of them die. You know, so you've lost a best friend, but life goes on. So you have to, um, you know, I've done a couple of eulogies for some good friends, man, who were good friends, um, but they're no longer with us, but I am. And so if you look at it that way, I think you understand what I'm trying to say, hmm. is it's continuously learning and don't forget, with every friend, there's likely to be a backstabber somewhere. <laughs> right? And it happens. I've had it happen to me. But the fact is, you find out, don't you? <clears throat> and that's a different kettle of fish. But that, that's what I would say. It, it really is. Friendship is one thing, but when you say friendship, it means looking after each other. Not just got that way. Now, you're there in the thick and the thin, mate. Could be a punch up in the street. Could be somewhere abroad. You know, it really is um, that way. And to a lot of people, they can say the same in different circumstances. But the camaraderie is what they wanted to show in Six Days film. John Mack, myself, they picked the scenario for the film. I just happened to be one of the guys in there. It could have been anywhere else in the film. I didn't pick it. They picked it, but they wanted to show the camaraderie. And I think it shows you quite well in there. Um, yeah. You know, um, but it's a film. So what would you want people going forward to to do for like veterans? You know, what would you want people to help with charities and things like that? You know, like because you work with some charities now. How how can people 
not just the poppy appeal and things like that. How can we actually help veterans? How can we donate to the right charities, help people who are coming out of the service? You know, not even just at government level, but like the people on the street, that sort of thing. Um, some of the bigger charities I wouldn't touch because I know what's happening in them. Unfortunately, I can't say what it is on here, but um, they really are piss takers. It's a shame to say that, but there are one or two charities. They're real hardworking charities, which you know, I do it for nothing. I don't get paid. Um, I'm a patron because I believe in it. But the, the charity system seems like it's open-ended for one, where they put the money in, they take it out. You know, um, how much do they do with the money they get? Nobody actually finds out. But we've all got our spies in the woodwork. So the charity, the setting up of a charity and stuff, I've thought of doing one myself. But actually, there's, I don't know how many, there's a couple of thousand charities. Every one of them is supposed to be doing wonders, but actually they don't. Um, but I had one for veterans in mind. Might still do it. Um, you know, speaking to James the other day, and up in Scotland in particular, there's a lot of soldiers in the streets. And I was thinking of, because my best mates, John and I, died in siege, I was thinking of maybe doing something with them or for them. Mm. It's just time consuming at the moment to just get around this corner or not. And um, I might still do that. Um <clears throat> because there's so many of them. And there's always the stories, you know. Of, I know some of them are true, because I've seen some of the stuff that's gone on. And I didn't particularly want to get involved in that and be part of it. But there are some good points to do, if you can do it. Some shit as well, by the way. But um, And I think everybody, if it's needed, because there's a lot of the veterans are amputees, as you well know. Um and all they try to do with them is give them a life back, give them something to aim at, give them a task, not let them think, you know, they lost a limb too. Some of the guys have lost three limbs, you know, and some of them still climbing Everest, you know. Mm. So they've got, not everybody needs to think. and It's hard to say, you know, I've lost a leg. They're still alive. And they're still alive. And they can be helped. But the mantra that we use for that is, I said it earlier, always a little further. Now think about that one again. Always a little further. And, you know, wherever you can... There is help outside of people who know what's going on. It's, it's pretty much, you know, it's easy to look over the top of it and go into the middle of it. 
that's what I don't like. I think that's maybe what we need is a, a charity run by veterans for veterans, people who actually yeah. understand and actually will deal yeah. with the problems, not just take a salary because they want to talk the PR stuff, but will actually help the you know veterans. And I think that would be an amazing idea. I, I know we're way over our time limit, but I, I such an honor to have you on. But what would you want people to take from this interview? What would you want them to remember about you, about the army, the movie, about life in general? How, how do you, you know, what, what would you want people to take from this? Um, well, for anybody who watches it is that I'm not about myself. What I've done is I've done. Mine's documented. So wouldn't it be nice to have some of these guys coming through and take the bull by the horns and get themselves documented for taking a lead, throwing everything aside, sod you, and go on and push and push and push and then let them be talked about. Oh, well, he was injured and it doesn't matter. You've still got a life. And the fact is, they're not well looked after. Nobody's ever going to change my mind on that. Nobody. But for me personally, I've done my bit. I'm not finished. I'm there to help. These guys, as long as they don't feel sorry for themselves, I know it's horrible to say. I don't mean it nastily. Some do. Cast that aside. Look up there and say, always a little further. Make that move. See if it changes your life. Because life changing, it can come from other people. But actually, I always remember a guy called Jim Rohn I worked security for. He said, in winter... The birds have to fly south. That's what they do. Yeah. A human being can turn and do whatever he wants to do. A bird has to fly south. That means it's got no choice. That's what they do. Yeah. I spend a lot of time on ornithology. Birds, study of birds, yeah? They fly south. So a veteran doesn't have to fly south. A veteran and a group of veterans... They do what they want, Ian. They make their mind up. They're the ones who can change their course. Yes, they can have help, but only an you know only a veteran can change his own course if he wants to. You're not going to round them all up and go right. You're going over there tonight. I wouldn't go. I'd say no. I want to go over that side. Bird can't do that. Yeah, has to fly south. So, from what you've just asked me, there is mileage in it. There is some help. And the fact is, as I said earlier, you have to help yourself. It sounds horrible at times, but stand up and be counted. You're in the military. You know, don't, don't even be worried about upsetting anybody. 
just do it as the advert says. And that's what I would say. And I know because I've been around enough of them. And I hope that even if only 20 people take heed of what I've said tonight, it's 20 people that might understand and maybe be able to pass that on to other people. If another 20, from them 20, understand it, well, there you go. There's your pyramid. You're going to start yeah. somewhere. That's my belief. And I think you've done this amazing job of showing people, you know, that you can start from anywhere, that your starting point doesn't matter. It's where you finish. No. It's always just a little bit more. Just keep going, keep pushing, and you can keep achieving things. And I think you're going to inspire so many people. So how can we keep in touch with you? How can we, you know, find your website, buy the books, see the new books and listen to your talks? You know, how, how can we follow this journey you're on? Normally, um, anybody wants to come to me, just go to my website, um, www.rusty-firmin.com. There's an awful lot in there. It's just been updated. There's more to come. Um, if you go there, first of all, it's got an um, email address on there. You know, it's got what you need. And I don't normally put the talks on there, but people who get me to go and do the talks, it's, it's what I do for a living, basically. You know, that's how I'm back out to the States again. And they look after you really well out there. They look after their veterans far better in the States than they'll ever do in this country. Absolutely, I don't know how they do it. They are veterans mad out there. So yeah. they are well looked after here. You forget it, you know. But if they go there to the website, first of all, um, you'll see what's going on. <clears throat> There's contact forms on there. And I've been contacted by quite a few. And if you can get that going, um, I can let them know once I get it's, it's a relatively new um, site up. The other one I've taken down, I've got a new one. It needs just tweaking up a bit in certain areas. But the fact is, it's on there. Um, and then just type my name into Google. <laughs> it's all yes. over the place. Um, but yeah, uh, that's it, Ian, really. You know, the books are on there. Um, it's not an awful lot of merchandise. I didn't believe in that. I'll put some other stuff on there when I get back. But in the main, there's enough stuff on there for people who really want to have a look and then see what happens, mate. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.